Welcome and welcome back to Not Your Token Minority, a podcast that explores and celebrates the stories of the global majority. For this second re-released episode, I have an extended and less edited version of my conversation with journalist and author Shiloh Kino. We chat all about her journey in discovering her passion for telling Māori stories, challenging the narrative around the way Māori are presented in the media, and her own journey to embracing her cultural background. When you finished at AUT, what were your goals then? Like, what what did you want to do post-degree, post-study? See, it's so interesting because when I was at AUT, I think I had been ingrained in my mind that, like, the type of journalist that um, we want to want to be is like to get onto like six six o'clock news you know what I mean or to get yeah. into mainstream or like get your face on tv or whatever um and so like I thought oh that's the type of journalist that I want to be but after uni and you probably felt that as well um it was so competitive like they were like your entire class going for that one job yep <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah exactly. it was hard and so um applying for Monaco Korea, like getting a job there was really awesome because even though it wasn't ideally like the job at the time that I thought I wanted, it was actually everything that I needed because it was like the best training ground. We got to work like the community of South Auckland, learn how to connect with people. There wasn't that like daily, um, the daily grind of like daily news. It was yeah. more like we, we got to have that like time to kind of um, like nurture the stories and nurture the way we tell our stories. Yeah. So I feel like that was like the best training yeah. ground for me. And to really connect with the community, which you mentioned before, like I think that's so important. And especially going from community news to more national daily news, you could really tell the difference, right? Like mm. not even having the time to really get into your community and know the people in the community, which is so important for these stories as well. But yeah. when you started at the Monaco career, like did you – were you as passionate about telling Māori stories as you are now? No, I wasn't. That's okay. such a great question. <laughs> I wasn't because I think I was still on my own journey of like coming to know my identity. So like, yeah, this. I mean, we can get into this later, but growing up, you know, I was so um, colonized in my mind and like internalized racism and things like that with being Māori. Definitely going to journalism school like at AUT, I learned more about the media and the media's contribution to racism and how it has affected me growing up Māori. And so being at Monaco Korea, I was still trying to work out, um, I guess, like who I was in being Māori. And I definitely didn't really understand the importance of like telling Māori stories until later on. But I feel like it definitely gave me that sort of like fire or, or the, the training ground. Can you um, tell me a bit more about that? Because I actually also kind of felt that um, – I definitely feel like you are way more sure of what kind of stories you want to tell and the purpose in your journalism now compared to at the start. Um, so can you tell me about just, I don't know, just growing up and um, your own, I guess, relationship with your own heritage and culture? Yeah, sure. So I grew up in a town called Waipu which is like two and a half hours from Auckland. And it's funny that I'm talking about this now because I was just thinking about Waipu. It's... um it's such a white town. Like it's, um, it celebrates Scottish culture, Scottish heritage. Okay. Have you ever been? Mm, it's, I don't um, remember. <laughs> it's like, it's like the whitest town ever. Like okay. it's so white. Um, but you know what? Like my childhood memories are like bagpipes and like, um, kilts and like That's going to crazy. Scottish games because like Scottish heritage was like celebrated in the town, still is. And, um, 
I, I know the names of the people that settled into Waipu, but I didn't know the names of my own like chief of like Napui because I feel like Waipu had like erased the history of Maori. So like in the 1850s, the Scottish people came and they settled into Waipu, and so that's celebrated. But then before that, there's nothing about Maori and all that. So it's very complicated. But anyway, that's where I grew up, and so me and my family moved there when I was like five, and. Because of that and because, like, for my, for, I guess, complex reasons of, like, colonization and my mum remarrying, like, a Pakia man, like, I didn't grow up knowing my culture or my heritage except when I would go back to the Marae when someone had died. Mm. And I think that's quite a common thing for a lot of urban Māori is that that's how we grow up. And so I feel like when you don't know your culture and you don't practice it, you learn from the sources around you, right? And so, like, for me, I was learning from the media and every time, like, I would turn on the news or open the newspaper, it was always, like, Māori were, like, the criminals or gang members or, um, you know, like, everything negative. Child abusers, that was a big thing yeah. for me growing up, um, was seeing that they were like, the ones that were killing children. And so when you have that, like, complex and you see that, why would you want to be Māori? You know, like, you you want to be anything else but Māori because it's such a negative um yeah, so negative, and so you grew up with like this internalized racism, and so um, I think it wasn't until I got to university, and um, you know, like walking into university class, and you know this too, like it's so white, but it wasn't even the fact that they were white; it was like they were like upper class private school white. <laughs> I was like, yeah. Um, were there any other Maldi students in your class? Because um, you did the undergraduate degree, um, right? Oh, so I did. Okay, so I did the first like six months of undergraduate and then I transferred and moved to Auckland Uni because I felt like journalism wasn't for me. And then I came back oh, to when you were yes. doing the postgrad and I did like a graduate diploma. Yes. Thing. Okay. Yeah. yeah I remember that, that now. It was, yeah, I remembered that you weren't in the undergrad class, but you weren't in the postgrad class. And I was like, <laughs> you, in between. Yeah, it's a random. <laughs> <laughs> like floating around yeah but yeah. okay so yeah were there other Maori students um so in my first year I don't remember meeting anyone but when I did come back um there was like I think one other but we were both unsure of like being Maori so hmm. I didn't even know if she was Maori but oh. until I think later on when she was like I'm Maori but um there, <laughs> there was you know like there was a um, a Fijian and a Cook Island, and those two became my really good friends. Um, one of them was my best friend, Taylor. Hmm. So, like, I connected with them immediately, but I didn't see any other Maori, and so it's like you you feel like you don't belong and you feel alienated. But I think it's a good um, analysis that if the classes are all pretty much predominantly white, then I mean that will reflect obviously in the newsrooms across the country. That's mostly white. Yeah, exactly. I actually remember during that year, one of the assignments, I forgot what the specifics were, but I did a story on or trying to look at why non-white people didn't go into journalism. And uh, yeah, I think the conclusion was that people just well people of color just didn't go into the media partly because their parents expected them to do other things but also partly because they didn't really see themselves in the media mm. and so they didn't feel like it was something that they 
could go into. Yeah, exactly. Like, there's that saying, right? You can't be what you can't see. Exactly. But it's like, we have no choice now. We have to be what we can't see. Otherwise, nothing's going to change. So why did you want to do journalism? So I always wanted to be an author and like write stories, but I didn't um, know that was an option, you know, like, because I didn't really see authors that were Māori, apart from like the two, Patricia Grace and Wete Wete Um But I do remember when I would see briefly on TV, Miriam Kamwam and and Mihi Forbes, mm. who were like two amazing Māori journalists. And I think that seeing them on TV was like, oh, okay, like maybe it's an option. Like maybe I could be a journalist. But also like I I really loved celebrities. And so like this is like such a shallow thing. I've changed, okay? I'm like better now. <laughs> Have you though? Deep down inside. <laughs> I've evolved. No. Um, I like, I wanted like to interview like famous celebrities because I was like, oh my gosh, imagine being able to interview like this, this person and that person. So that was my reason. But my, you know, like going into journalism, actually being in there, I realized that the purpose, my purpose was a lot greater than myself and that you could actually make such a change as a journalist, right? Like yeah. you have this platform to influence and change lives and like change policies and yeah, tell stories and yeah, just so many things you can do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so when you came into the Manukaukaria, um, you were there for how long? A year. A year. What, what do you think were some of the best lessons that you gained from your time there? I think that like we mentioned earlier, it was the connecting with people that mm. really, I think, has influenced me, influenced me then and has like stayed with me. And it's cool because, um, actually, interesting story. One of the, um, women that I met, Kud Devi, who, um, she was walking around Manurewa giving out soup. And so I did a story on her and then that, and then like other media outlets picked up on that. Well, I was able to see her this year, sorry, last year. So it's 2021. And um, connect with her again nice. and to see like how much she had changed from just giving out soup that she made to now having her own community center in Manurewa. And then me like working like, you know, in the little Monaco career and then now being able to um, tell her story on like TV for Mirai. Mm. It was just really cool connecting with her again. Um, so, yeah, I think it was a connection with people nice. that I feel like has been like the biggest lesson being in, in the South Auckland community as well. And, you know, like we had the best boss. Judith. Oh, Judith was the best, honestly. I don't think we could have had a better boss, especially as graduates of journalism. I think she just taught us so much. Yeah, right? she was amazing. Love you, Judith, if you're listening. Yeah. <laughs> I'll email her a copy. <laughs> but I think she was the best. And like, yeah. I think it was her, um, like, oh, one thing that I noticed with her is that if anything went wrong, she took the blame. If ever anything went right, she always praised us. Um, and she always made me feel like I was like the best writer in the world, even though it was like my first job. You know yeah. what I mean? Like she just made you feel so good and was able to really nurture the talent, like, uh, sorry, nurture storytelling for me and yeah. crafting stories. Yeah, yeah. She was always so supportive of her team. Mm. You know, we would get people who would, call in and complain or whatever and she would always back us yeah which is such an important trait I think for a leader and just yeah, yeah like, even just aside from journalism I think she taught us a lot about just being decent people as like well being like a character right like yeah. a character yeah because I had someone complain about me too and mm. like 
um, I was so upset because, you know, I thought it was like the end of the world. Oh. And um, she, like, phoned him and, you know, like, she had my back. And mm. it's it's like, and then once you, like, once I finished Monaco Korea, I realized that there is not many other Judiths in the industry. Actually, they're quite the opposite. So you worked at the Monaco Korea for a year and then you decided to go to Hong Kong. Mm. Um, on a mission yeah why like what what inspired that decision okay so my faith is the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints and so um i wanted to go on a mission because i felt like um something that i needed to do to go and serve other people and i didn't choose hong kong but our church leaders kind of choose for us like where we go so i was told that i was going to go to hong kong and learn mandarin and it was like the most random thing ever because like super random i could speak one language english and i was like there's no way that i'm going to be able to learn mandarin um so basically we got sent to salt lake first for two months learning basics like ni hao or sure shiloh like it was like the basic as and then going to hong kong and that was like for the next 16 months every day speaking mandarin and connecting with people that were coming from mainland china and i think what that taught me though was the power of language and the how when you learn a language it doesn't it's not you're not just learning the words you're learning someone's culture and it's actually like a really spiritual experience Mm. You know, and like speaking with the people from China as well, they were like, you know, how come, oh, can you speak your language? You know, can you speak? And I'm like, no. <laughs> like, What did they say when you said that? They couldn't understand. Mm. They were like, what do you mean? Like, like, what do you mean you can't speak? You know, and I'm like, oh, like, I can't. And I was like, oh, it's a long, it's a long story, like the history of New Zealand. Like, And they're like, man, like, that's like if someone came and took away Mandarin, like, from us. Like, I can't imagine not speaking Mandarin, mm. you know, like it's crazy. Yeah, and I've heard you in interviews and in your writing talk about like learning a foreign language is one thing, but learning the language that is of you and of your culture and heritage is just something so different. Yeah, no, it is. Yeah, and you talk about that quite a bit. I do talk about it a bit because coming back to New Zealand, people are so impressed that I can speak Mandarin. You know, and I've heard this from every person and, and it's like, it's fine. Like, but they say, Oh, you know, like, wow, you can speak Mandarin. It's the hardest language in the world. You can, you should be able to speak Maori. Like, <laughs> I bet, like, you'll be able to pick it up, you know, so yeah. easy. And like, that's actually not the case. Um, because learning a foreign language isn't, it's like you're not as attached to it. Whereas when you're learning your own language, there's so much, um, well, for me, like trauma to overcome or to dismantle, um, whether it be like looking at your own internalized racism of like speaking Maori or whether it be um, the history that comes from thinking about like your grandparents and that they were beaten for speaking Maori, um, like identity crisis, like there's so much that is encompassed in learning and, and trying to reclaim back your own language. Yeah. You know, even trying to make sense of it in your mouth, like, like it's just... I don't know. It's like a different playing field. So I think for non-Maori being able to speak Maori, I think that's awesome. But I don't think that you have the same struggle as as Maori. Okay, so you went to Hong Kong for two years. Uh, 18 months. 18 months. What was that whole experience like? Like, what did you – like, you must have learned so much during your time there, not just Mandarin. (laughs) To be honest, it was like a crazy experience. Like I had never actually been into Asia before, so like I felt like I was just like dropped into the deep end. I just, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know how to put it into words except like it was just like an incredible experience of living over there. 
I, I felt like my mind was like opened, like my horizons were opened up a lot because, you know, like in New Zealand, I feel like we're a little bit small minded and, and culturally like we're very small minded, right? Yeah. <laughs> and it's not until we really go overseas and see, wow, there's like a bigger world out there that we, our eyes are sort of open to a lot more. And this is probably a reoccurring thing, but it was like the connection to the people that I made over in, in Hong Kong. Like I truly like, I truly came to love like the people over there and I truly came to love the Chinese people. Yeah. Um, and it's such a weird thing to kind of like No, try not to weird explain. at all. We're amazing people. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, you are. don't Chinese, like isn't there a lot of connection between Chinese and Maori cultures? There are definitely a lot of similarities, like the the love that Chinese people have. It's funny eh? because like they don't they don't say like love you, but they'll just make you food yes. or like feed you, or, yep. and they're not very like touchy people. But it's like yeah, I just ah oh, man, I just came to love Chinese people and the culture. Yeah, so 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 much. So when I came back to New Zealand, I was like man, like I love Chinese people. Like, yeah. I'm gonna marry a Chinese like husband. <laughs> Oh, Chinese kids. Oh, my God. Cute. <laughs> I was like at Dominion Road, like, oh like my God. almost like every night, like just speaking Chinese to the people there. But yeah, it was what, amazing. What kind of reactions would you get from people when oh my they gosh. heard you speak Chinese? Oh, man. It's like, it's funny because um, I feel like the barriers go down immediately. Mm-hmm. The Their face lights up. Um, their eyes like pop out of their head. Oh, my gosh. Like you can speak Chinese, you know, like so many, I've made so many like amazing friends. Um, and it's funny cause like, you'll just be like, ni hao. And they'll be like, ah, ni hao. <laughs> and they're like, they're like, oh, yeah. and then they're like, oh my gosh, like you can actually speak Chinese. Um, it's been amazing though. Like, um, I made, I've made heaps of amazing friends, heaps of families invite me over to their house for dumplings. I will be like at a random Chinese family's house, just like eating um, all their dumplings. Yeah, like eating, like, and they'll like literally like make dumplings like for me because they're so touched that mm. I can speak Mandarin, and like it made me think about how um, how special it is, and that how much they appreciate it when someone takes the time to learn the culture and language, and how different the world would be if we all did that. You know what I mean? If we all yeah. embraced like each other's language and things like that. But it definitely, yeah, like I definitely felt like I connect. I connected with the Chinese people and that their language was that way to like dismantle the barriers. After you came back from Hong Kong, what did you do? Yeah, so after I came back um, from Hong Kong, I I felt like I was a different person. I feel like Hong Kong was like the most transformative time of my life. And so I came back into journalism and I started working. I moved down to Tauranga and I started working for a mainstream media outlet. And I think working down in Tauranga was another transformative time of my life where I came to really understand racism and colonization and who I was like as a Maori person. And I think because Tauranga is probably the most racist place in New Zealand. Really? And um, talk me through that because I actually thought it'd be Christchurch or something. (laughs) Well, I thought it was Christchurch too, but no, I really feel like it's Tauranga. Um, Really? And no one told me. So I was like blindsided. (laughs) I moved down. I was excited because, oh, the mount, you know, the ocean, it's beautiful. I feel like the beauty is like a facade, though, and it covers up a lot of the um, ingrained racism there. Um, Okay, so I was working for a mainstream media, and I was covering a lot of stories, and everything that seemed to pop up was racism, like racist stories, and 
like injustices. And one example is there was a building um, called the um, the Elms in Tauranga that the council have decided to give gift back, not gift, sorry, give back to local Māori because it belonged to Māori in the first place. And so, you know, that's fine, right? Like, cool, I'm going to give the building back. But no, the community were like, no, that's not going to happen. We're going to fight this. All the community came together and they wrote public submissions on why the building shouldn't go back. And I had to read through their submissions and some of them were like, Māori are responsible for burglaries and things like that. We can't give them this. It was just like the most racist, um, horrible like things that I've ever read. And people were putting their names to this. Like it wasn't like as if you were reading like an anonymous thing and like They weren't even ashamed. Yeah, they weren't ashamed of it. You know, there was the one that was like, Oh, Maori already get all these free handouts and and I was like, Oh my gosh. And so this was one example. And another example too was Tauranga Council. I was covering stories on there and there was a Tauranga councillor who would outright write on his social media, you know, like that he wants to burn the treaty. And he hadn't been put into council yet. He was running for council. And so I was like, wow, this guy's racist, right? And so I, I would have thought that the community wouldn't want to elect him. But he, he had like the highest number of, of votes mm. in Tauranga. And I was like, wow. So there were, there were things like that that I was covering as well as myself, like facing racism that I've never faced before. Like personally, yeah. people would say things to you? Or? Yeah, personally, think that people would say things to me like, I had this story and this is like funny now, but I'm going to just like say it. So I went to go cover a story about homelessness, right? And so I walk into the homeless shelter and the woman working there, she's like a parkour woman. She like hands me a box of tampons. Oh my God. She's like, <laughs> she's oh like, it's God. the last one. And I was like, what? She's like, oh, it's the last one. Here you go. And then I was like confused and I looked behind her and I saw the homeless people and they're all Maori. Oh my God. And then I said to her, that's I'm not so homeless. Like, <laughs> I'm the reporter like yeah. that's come here to do the story. And she's like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. And so now I kind of laugh about that. But I think like the idea that she just saw that I was Maori and because everyone else was Maori there, that that's all she saw. Like it didn't matter that I was dressed nicely or whatever. It's all she saw. And so that's an example. And there are a lot of, um, I guess, other like little aggressions and things. Yeah, you post a lot of them to your social media, right? Yeah. Because I remember reading a few, uh, they're mostly emails oh, yeah. that you put on Insta- right. like your stories. And it's just awful. Well, yeah, well, because um, so I was covering stories of racism and things like that. But because I wanted to challenge um the narrative of Māori and tell positive Māori stories, good Māori stories, you know, that I never got to see growing up. I actively went out of the way to find, like, amazing Māori people to to um, share their stories. And so I would do that and I would get pushback and I would get emails. And there was this one woman that I covered who was the first Māori pilot woman, Māori woman. And I did a story on her and... I was getting pushback about that. Like, it doesn't matter that she's Māori. Like, why why are you bringing her culture into this? You know what I mean? Just like, there, there was like that pushback. Um, oh, my gosh. There was a pushback about the counsellor that I covered who was saying those racist things. That, oh, no, it's not racist. It's just his opinion. Oh, I can't even remember what else, what it, other emails. It sounds like such an infuriating experience. How long were you down there for? 
Um, two years I was down there, 18 months or two years. So it was like not only did I have to experience racism in my everyday life, but then in my job as well, and like in the office, um, reporting on the stories, opening up your inbox and seeing constant pushback from like white males because it was always white males, older white males. Isn't it always? (laughs) (laughs) And they were just constantly pushing back and then having to have the internal struggle with my um sorry having the struggle with my my boss as well my bosses or things like that because um they couldn't understand why something is a story or why something was a problem or like you know I was told that I was too um biased when I was doing racism stories um and it made me think okay well am I not a good journalist then because of course I feel biased like this affects me personally like this is racist like these these submissions are racist. Like this is not a point of view. Like this, it is what it is. And know? that's why also it's important to have diversity in users as well. Because I'm assuming these bosses of yours were white, white men. Pakeha, yeah, yeah. How'd you know? <laughs> it's a surprise every time. <laughs> but I think that the consequence of not having diversity in newsrooms is what happened with the Otago Daily Times. You had this cartoon that was so racist that was like making a mockery of measles happening and like people in summer were actually dying and how it got passed from the cartoonist through to like the editors right through to the top editor and then published is like beyond me. But I realize now it's because there probably was an entire white newsroom who had no connection to summer and no understanding of like cultural you know what I mean? Like that's how things happen is when you just have like a full white newsroom, you know, of like no yeah, like co- exactly. No, yeah. I mean one thing that I like found too was how do I how do I say this without like calling anyone out? But <laughs> like working in a newsroom and like um there are reporters that had lived in Tauranga for like years, like their whole lives and were still saying Tauranga. Um, mm. and like, I know, like, we all need to make it, like, I know that we're all doing our best, but I mean, you know, like, even the pronunciation of like the city that you live in and where you're working at is, I feel like, really important, you know, and so it's like things like that. And, and like, also for me, I was always asked to, um, translate, you know, like, oh, like, can you help, like, translate this? And I'm like, no, like, I can't because I don't <laughs> speak my language because of yeah. colonization. My grandparents have been that, but, um, you know, like, <laughs> You know, there's just like constant things or like, um, I remember when I handed over my job to someone else and they were like called and they were like, Hey, like, I want to do like some multi stories. Like, can you give me the context? And like, you know, mm. and I was like, cool, you want to do multi stories, but it's not as easy as, um, what you think it is. Like you need to like spend time making connections and relationships. Yeah. Another thing you need to take into consideration is like the trust. Māori people don't trust the media. Like, even though I was Māori, like, I had to earn the trust because I was still working for a company that had, like, I guess, portrayed a lot of Māori and had had portrayed Māori in, in such a negative way for so many years. So mm. why would they trust you, like, as a white person to come in yeah. and just think that you can do a story and, you know, and that you're going to do it well? Like, it takes time to, like, um, develop those relationships. So there's, like, a lot of, I guess, like, layers Okay, so you were working in Tauranga for two years and then you came back to Auckland? Yeah, so 
living down in Tauranga and, and experiencing what I was going through, I felt like I was going through like this real awakening um, of who I was. And so I feel like I was confronted with racism wherever I, wherever I went. I was like exhausted. I was like drained. Um, I didn't want to be a journalist anymore because it just felt like it was too hard. I felt like I was getting pushed back wherever I went. And even though, like, and this is another interesting thing, is that the stories that I was telling, the Māori stories were doing like the best for that mainstream media outlet that I was working out of all of the stories. And they were telling me like, oh, these are really good. Like, um, keep up these Maori stories. And it's like, <laughs> well, like, it's like, of course, of course it's doing good because people want to see like, the narrative is changing now. Like, we don't want to see negative Maori stories. We want to see positive, like uplifting, like, you know what I mean? Like, because it's like such an, anyway, I was going through this, like, I don't want to be a journalist, like a, a Maori journalist anymore. Oh, sorry. I don't want to be a journalist anymore because I feel like every day I'm just like confronted with racism and I, I, I can't catch a break. So one thing that really stirred me up was when the Christchurch attacks happened. Yes. And I'm sure like for everyone that was like a traumatic experience. For me, it was um, like a, I guess, an opportunity for me to look at the media and look at myself and – I found it so hypocritical of the media outlet that I was working at and mainstream media outlets that for one week they would post Muslim stories and like they are us and like, you know, all that stuff. And then after that it was back to either erasing Muslim from the media or just portraying Muslim and again in like the negative light that we've seen for so long. Um, and I, I was like, I don't want to be a journalist because I feel like I – one, like it's hard to make the change, but two, I don't want to contribute to this ongoing racism, and especially working at a mainstream. Like, why would I want to stay in a place that just fuels the racism? I mean, a white supremacist went and he like murdered all these people, and you can't say that media didn't play a role in, mm. in um, the way that you know, like minorities are viewed, the way that Maori are viewed, like they have for so long. So that was kind of like a, a way that. I guess that made me really think about what I wanted to do. And then it wasn't until, like, I don't know if you know Stacey Morrison. Yes, of course. <laughs> She's uh, this incredible lady and my hero. Love you, Stacey. <laughs> <laughs> she reached out to me and I was really touched by that because I didn't, she didn't know, really know me, but I knew of her. And so she called me and, and like, I told her what I was going through and, she just listened and um, she kind of helped me helped me through that. But um, because of her, I, I was like, okay, yeah, like I'll stay because I can see the difference that Stacey is making in her platform of being like a Tiro Māori advocate and of helping people like me. So, yeah, I want to stay. Um, and then so I stayed at my job until I could. And then I decided to move back to Auckland, which was actually about a year ago mm. without any job. But I decided that I would just move back because it was better for my mental health. Yeah, of course. Yes. Yeah. I don't know if people realise being a journalist can be so draining. Yeah. And when you're battling constant ag- aggression and abuse all the time, it's just no wonder so many people leave journalists. Right, and go to PR. Yeah. <laughs> Cross my mind. So. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. So when you were experiencing all that racism, 
did it fuel a fire in you yeah, as well? I think so because I feel like um, I think it's a gift actually to recognize injustice. And a lot of people would say that, oh, you know, like I know that people thought that I was a bit too much when I would call things out. And I got that in my messages on Instagram by like friends. Really? Yeah, who would say like, no, like I don't think you're right and all that. But I think it's a gift to be able to recognize injustice and it's a fire that you can feel to make a difference. And so last year was such a transformative year. Sorry, 2019 was such a transformative year because I experienced that racism. I was able to recognize that, okay, well then this is what I'm going to do. I want to be a journalist that is able to um, change the narrative and challenge it for Māori and I want to be a storyteller and an author and I want to tell these stories that are going to push all of this aside and make people like me proud to be Māori um, and to be able to give the voices back to back to us as like tangata whenua. When I was living in Tauranga, I was also writing my book, The Pūranga oh, Boy. Oh, okay. Yeah. And again, that was I was writing about things that were so like um, traumatizing for me that I didn't realize um, would affect me so much. But it was the book is based on what happened in Natha, where a prison was built, and the Natha people protested against it because it was being built on Maori land um, with thermal waters. And, and during that year, I was living in Tauranga, I went up to uh, Natha and I met a woman called Toi Mahi. And I wanted to know everything about the Nafa prison. And she was one of the lead protesters and she had kept a scrapbook of everything that had happened in the, over the four years of protest. And there were things that she showed me and told me that I had no idea. I had no idea about these kind of injustices. And I was like in tears when mm. I was sitting next to her. She showed me photos of where Komatua were being arrested um, for simply trying to protect the land. She showed me media articles from local newspapers in which how they had portrayed what happened in Nafa, which was which was wrong and not the full story. Can you explain a bit then the importance of that land to Māori people? Because just in case there are any listeners out there who aren't from New Zealand, who don't have right. that sort of cultural context. I'll try. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. Well... You know, Māori are tangata whenua, which means we're the indigenous people of New Zealand, of Aotearoa. So the land was once that belonged to us. And then the British or the Pākehā people came and they colonised and they took the land away from us. Um, and that's like to say that in like the simple way. But I think land is not just land to us. It's There's so much more to it. And I think when you take away the land, you took away our identity, you took away our culture, you took away our belonging, you took away our mana, um, you took away everything from us and you left us broken. You know, like there's broken people trying to pick up the pieces of that back. And so, um, you know, like we are really connected to the land as Māori and I hope that answers, I'm not sure like if that answered the question. That was really eloquent. <laughs> 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 that was really nice. Okay. Thanks for that. Um, okay, so you were wor- working on your book, which was published... End of last year. End of last year. Can you tell me about the process of, you know, deciding on what your f- the story of your first book would be? And I don't know, that like you must have had to think about so many yeah. things. 
Um, yeah, I've always wanted to be an author for sure. I think I didn't want to just be like an author that just wrote a story and like, you know, like Bob went to the shop or like, you know what I mean? Or like, yeah. I knew that I wanted to write a story that um, would make a difference and that would educate people and give an insight into Māori culture. But also I wanted to write it for Māori kids like me that grew up. Māori not knowing or understanding who I was and learning about myself and seeing myself in stories. And, you know, I wanted to tell a story with all the layers. And that's a problem that we've seen for so long with with not even just Māori, but when stories are told by non-Māori, by the coloniser, it's like a single story. So it becomes about a Māori person being maybe like a criminal or like, you know, like a gang member or whatever. And I've said this before, but it's not that it, it isn't true. It's just that it's a single story. It doesn't tell the full story. How did you come across the story The story that your book is based on? Right. So I, I grew up in Northland, oh, like I said earlier, in Waipu. And I'd heard about what happened at Nafa prison, but I didn't really understand the context of it. It wasn't until an adult that I started thinking about it. And I was like, what actually happened at Nafa prison? I Googled it a little bit and there wasn't a lot of information right, about it. But I remember I did read an article where it said that Māori people were protesting because they believed that a taniwha lived in the water. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that's so interesting. Imagine if you're a kid, you're caught up in this protest. You don't care about the land, really, like as, as a kid growing up on there, but you care about the taniwha, you know, which a taniwha, for those who don't know, is like a, a Māori mythical, oh, like a mythical creature, like a kaitiaki, like a guardian. Um, and so that interested me and then I went and I met with Toy Mahi and then that's when I knew that this story was really important, that it was bigger than myself and I needed to tell it. And then after I met with Toy, it was like the words just came out, like it was like the story read itself. Um, and the process of writing The Porangi Boy was probably five years. So living in Tauranga was when I finished it and I was able to really write it, but I guess from the moment that I began thinking about it was that first year, five or so years ago, and then it was sort of I worked worked on it bit by bit, but I really wrote it and finished it when I was living in Tauranga. I think it really shows as well because the reception to your book has been pretty positive, right? <laughs> like overwhelmingly. Yeah, it has, and um, which is like such a humbling thing for me. Like I, I think like – it's at a time where people are really hungry for Māori indigenous stories and when I was writing it, ihu mātau wasn't even a thing, like protest and Māori was always such a negative thing that you would see like on the news where Māori were protesting and and it was always like uh, weaponised as like an angry, like as like a negative thing. So for me like writing this book, I didn't know like what to expect. I didn't know that people would you know, like I just didn't know what to expect. And then I'm really grateful because Ihu Mātau came along with the protest and that became mainstream. And then now it's like people want to know Māori stories or are hungry for it. I think it's no longer acceptable in 2021 for anyone to be telling our stories that that is not us. You know what I mean? Um, and so with the Pōrangi boy, it's not a story that is just um, like – there are negative things in there too because you can't shy away from injustices of Māori and like we are overrepresented in every almost every negative statistic, right? And so not everything is like peaches and, and like glitter and all that. 
but it's a difference when compared to myself and say like a Pakia telling the story is that like I'm telling it in, in my way from my point of view as a Māori and I feel like you're able to um, understand that when you read the Porangi Boy because although you might have these things happening in the background that aren't good, it's not the focus of the story. The focus of the story is the, the, the characters and I think that's maybe the difference. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, but you're actually working on a second book as well, aren't you, right mm-hmm. now? Yeah. What can you tell us about that? <laughs> <laughs> well, the second book, I'm, uh, I'm probably like halfway through this book. This book is about three teenagers in New Zealand whose lives come together um, from Black Lives Matter movement in America. Hmm. So I'm really interested in the way that um, – it affected us here in Aotearoa. You know, during the first lockdown, I remember there was the what was the first or second lockdown of last year. We had the big protests here in New Zealand, and I was, for me, I'm really not. I'm not surprised, but amazed at the amount of people who um, who are calling out injustice and racism from Black Lives Matter. Like, it's it's amazing. Like I saw it on social media. It's all over my Instagram. I would have have liked it to be something that would have come earlier rather than just because this is happening in America. But it's amazing to think that what's happening all over in the States can affect us here in Aotearoa. But also, um, like, I wonder why we can't look at our own racism, you know, because I think there's that myth that New Zealand isn't racist. And I remember when Taika Waititi called out, that it was racist, everyone got angry at him mm. and like, oh, he should be grateful because he's he's doing well, mm. you know, so it can't be racist. Um, so, yeah, like I, I'm really interested in how it affects it and like I guess indigenous connection to the black people in America and what it is like for three different teenagers living here in New Zealand and, and how it impacted their lives. Hmm. Sounds really interesting. Sounds challenging. To write well, um, what inspired it really? Should I say this? Yeah, I'll say it. <laughs> was um, I was walking. I was on my walk, um, one of my daily walks during lockdown. I was listening to Oprah Winfrey podcast, and um, she was talking to Maya Angelou. Maya Angelou is my absolute favorite, hmm. and Oprah Winfrey was saying, "You only know what you know," and then. May Angela says, yeah, you do only know what you know, but once you know better, you do better. Mm. So that was on my mind. And around that same time, there was a girl at a, um, a school on the North Shore, a, a white girl who did blackface. Oh, yeah. And that photo was screenshot and shared all over social media. And it happened to be at this time where, I mean, protests were happening, George Floyd, and this girl ended up having to leave school because of what had happened. And I kept thinking, is there redemption? You know, is there redemption for people who make these mistakes? Or how do we move forward? Um, because I'm not saying what she did was right. Of course, it was it was totally wrong. But I guess I'm just interested in like, the different perspectives when it comes to racism. And um, maybe her life is ruined. I don't know. But yeah, so it's just like all these complexities, I feel like. Yeah, but, um, and... How many chances do you give somebody to change the way they yeah. think and how they express themselves and whether they actually put in the work to correct their prejudices? And Yeah, I mean, like, especially she was young, you know? Yeah. I'm definitely not saying what she did was okay, but it made me think about the way that we 
address racism, you know, like what's the best way to move forward, but to help people to understand what what is wrong. I mean, I I'm always having arguments on my Instagram because like, <laughs> people message the best me. place to have arguments. <laughs> I'll post something and then someone will message me something, and I'm like, no, like, like I think like because it can be very. Um, tiring and exhausting having to uh, explain racism 101 i mean in 2021 like there's no excuse now for you not to know because you can literally google anything at your fingertips you can read up on yourself you shouldn't be asking like a person of color about like the basics yeah and it's not your job either to have to explain all of that stuff yeah so i mean like that's what i mean and so i forgot where i was going with this (laughs) (laughs) But like, yeah, I'm not, I don't want to have to constantly explain what racism is or like why it's wrong. People should be doing their own homework. But at the same time, I do want to figure out the way in which we can move forward to help people understand. Mm. Yeah. So you came back with no job and then you went to work for TVNZ? Yeah. Um, Yeah, I came back with no job and I, I just decided to maybe do freelancing writing and stuff but then a job at Mirai came up so I applied for it and I and I got it and um yeah so I worked there for 2020 and that was like the best um opportunity for me to grow as a reporter and and being able to understand my niche of telling Maori stories the difference between working at mainstream and working at a non-mainstream like as a Maori um, media it was incredible because I no longer had to explain why something was a story I felt like there were no barriers I could just go and I could just like flourish and do the stories that I wanted to do um, which was incredible you know for I think for so long living in Tauranga or like working at a mainstream I felt the struggle of being a Maori journalist but for the first time I felt the power of being a Maori journalist and that's what I felt working at Midai and being able to tell the stories that I wanted to tell. That's so awesome and kind of the goal for a lot of journalists, right? Just to be able to tell the stories that you want to tell yeah, and to actually embrace and use the power of journalism and storytelling for greater good. Yeah. And I think like one example is, you know, so I think for so long as well, I've always tried to do positive Maori stories because that's what I didn't see growing up. But I feel like as I've evolved, I realize that that's not possible. Like I can't, I need to really highlight issues too. But I think that's a difference when we tell our own stories is that we're able to highlight these issues in a way that um, is important to us. So one of the biggest stories that I did was four sisters who took their step-grandfather to court for sexual abuse. Mm. So that's a horrific story, mm. right? Even just saying that. Um, but I wanted to tell the story right and, and properly. And I remember the night before meeting them, and this is something like quite personal, but I felt like my ancestors and I felt their ancestors and it was such a surreal feeling, but I felt like this urgency that the story that I was telling was was so important, like really, really important. And I remember flying down the next day to Hastings where they lived and I was thinking like, is this normal to have this? Like, like what what is happening? And I met I met the girls and it was like beautiful and before we started the story we said a karakia, like a, a prayer, like and I've never really done that before and especially not in mainstream. We said a karakia and honestly it was like the most like enlightening spiritual experience of my life. It was such a, a horrific thing to happen to them. 
but we were able to turn it into something that was um, redeeming and hopeful and beautiful. And we felt that um, the whole weekend we were down with them. And then once the story came out, it went huge on social media, had like over a million views. But that's not the point. The point is that the amount of messages that we got from people who were able to um, take their perpetrator to court or to come out and say, oh, I've been abused as well, like the impact, the impact of that storytelling was it was incredible. So how did you come to the the decision to study Tedero for a year then? Yeah, well, I've tried, I guess, for the last five years, no, three years since I've been back in New Zealand to learn Tedero Māori, but I've found it really difficult. Um, I feel like I've gone to like the night, nightly classes. I've got all of Scotty Morrison's books. I've listened to every podcast there is. Um, I've stuck up like notes up around my wall of words and it's not coming to me, you know? And then so, um, last year doing all these Maori stories has been, um, really enlightening for me. But the moment that I feel like really, really did it for me was when I was in Tauranga. Um, doing another racist story and um this this kayako this teacher at a kohangareo she started speaking maori to me and i said hey like i can't speak maori yet i'm still learning and she just looked at me and said like how can you tell us stories but not speak our language and i remember just like looking at her and i was really hurt by what she said and i went back into the car and i had this cry like i was just crying Mm. and then i was like she's right it's like i I feel like I'm not able to give all of myself to my, the work that I'm doing. And I feel like that's not going to come until the language comes because I know what it's like to learn a language, like to learn Mandarin. And that opened up the doorways or the path or, you know, like the window to the, the connection with the people. And I feel like that hasn't come to me yet. So although I'm a Maori journalist and I've been able to tell our stories, it, I feel like my Maori worldview is just half. And that's for me personally. It doesn't. I'm not speaking on everyone, so I knew that I had to go and and do everything I can. And so I signed up for the full immersion Māori course, which starts um, this year. And I was either like give give nothing or give everything. You know what I mean? Like I need to give a hundred to it mm, and put sure. put my language first and like sacrifice everything else. Like nothing else really matters anymore until I get the language back or reclaim it. I think. That goes back to our earlier point we were talking about, about how language really breaks down barriers. And this is just like another level, right? Like it's almost like a key to unlocking yeah. everything for you, right? Right. I'm still on my like indigenizing journey. Um, you know, I used to say decolonize, but um, indigenizing journey of trying to find out who I am. So I feel like this will be another, like you said, like another key in unlocking. Um, who, who is Shiloh? You know, like who am I as a tangata whenua, as, as a Maori person? And what's the best way that I can help, help Maori or like tell our stories and language is, an, is another key to it. So, um, when you were doing your reporting and your interviews and everything then, were you communicating in English or how were you communicating with the people you were interviewing? Oh, so my stories were in English. Ah, okay. So they had a reporter there that was like the Te Māori person. And I remember my boss used to always say, all of the stories are to be in Te Māori this week, except for Shiloh. <laughs> <laughs> 
He wasn't meaning like harm by it, but I just would be like, yeah. I'd get like so mad at myself. Did you ever feel not incompetent is not the right word because you're not incompetent at all. No, I know what you're saying. Did I ever feel out of of place? Yeah, I I did. And it's it's another funny thing really is I was in mainstream feeling out of place and then come into a Māori media where I was the only one that couldn't speak Māori. I felt out of place too. Mm. It's like two different, you know, I felt like I was just floating in between. Like, who am I? Like, where do I belong? Like, I don't belong here. I didn't belong there. What am I doing? Um... So yeah, it did make me feel inferior and it did make me feel like I was still like I was still lost and still trying to figure out how to how to like how to navigate all of this. Um so yeah, and and not only was that kayako kind of that like kind of nail in the coffin to go and learn it, but I was surrounded by my report um my colleague Fatih, who's Tito Māori was incredible, my producer Blake, um, whose Māori was incredible, but like I said, it's not just the language that they had. It's everything that encom- encompasses it. Mm. So you can see it in their wider or their spirit and you can feel it. And I, I, you know what I mean? Like it's something that I just wanted to have. I want that. Like when I was watching them, I was like, I want what you have. You know yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. That's amazing though that you have such great role models around you though who you can look up to and aspire and who you can kind of, yeah, aspire to and use as inspiration and motivation especially because I'm sure you're going to face a lot of challenges in the year ahead yeah and it's just kind of keeping your eye on the prize (laughs) goal yeah and I think like I just want to say that Stacey Morrison is like my greatest inspiration Mm. and she really is the one that motivated me actually to go and learn Maori because what I've seen like if you've ever had the opportunity to meet Stacey or Scotty there is something really special about both of them and being in the room with them. It's like they just glow. Mm. Like they're just like these virtual giants and you're like, wow, like <laughs> what's so different about them? Oh, I know. They speak to do a Māori, but not only that, but they use their platform to help educate and help every person in New Zealand to learn it too. And they've done so much for the Māori language and they do it out of their own like sort of spare time, like out of their hearts, not for any kind of other means. Like, if I think back to when Stacey called me, um, I was like, no one. And I'm not saying I'm someone now, but she didn't, there was no motivation for her to do that except for help me. And throughout the time that I've known her, she's always reached out to me and she's always got time for me. And like, if I, if I message her with a question, she'll message back straight away. And I don't know how she does it because she's like a mother and like radio broadcaster and like does like all these a million things. Um, and you know, even my book launch, she was like the MC. Yeah, and she, you know, like, she's just an incredible, incredible role model. And she has this amazing ability to walk in the Pākehā world and the Māori world and be respected in both. And I haven't mm. seen that before mm. from anyone. Is that something that you aspire to? Um, <laughs> well, I think, yeah, I think um, I aspire to be like Stacey in the way that um, to live my life in the service of of Māori. Um, and to be able to inspire Māori. Like, I think her and Scotty, their, their life is just in service of others. And that's why I inspire to be. And I think they've been able to reap the um, benefits from that. Um, but I aspire to be like them in that way. That's so awesome. Tell me all about, like, going into your year ahead. Like, how are you feeling? And do you have any expectations? Or, um, I feel. Like I do feel nervous, 
and it's it's sort of like a terrifying feeling to go into like the unknown. Um, I know like from learning Mandarin and going to Hong Kong, it's gonna be kind of, it's kind of been the same way in which I don't know what to expect and what happened and how hard it was learning Mandarin was um harder than what I thought it would be. Like it was so hard, I used to cry every night because um, <laughs> because we would sit with Chinese people and I didn't know what they were saying. Like I had no idea what they were talking about. And all I could say was like, um, should I? Or like, you know, like, yes, or like, no. Yeah. I didn't know what they were saying. And it was really frustrating for me because I couldn't, I felt like I couldn't connect with them yet. So I know that with learning Māori, it's going to be sort of similar, but probably a lot more harder because of a, a lot of trauma that might come out and um, a lot of like the dismantling my own, yeah, dismantling the trauma that will come out of it. So I don't know what to expect, but I, like, I am excited about it but at the same time you know like it's an unknown territory and I think it's cool when you see like so I've seen a lot of Maori who have the language now and I've seen them before and it's almost like an indigenous glow up of like who they are I love that indigenous glow up <laughs> you know because they're so sure of themselves and their identity what I'm interested though is is like the journey like the, the process of mm-hmm. it and like I know that it's going to be hard for me there's a lot of um milestones throughout the year for example we have to say a big speech and um I think the second month um we have to do it like a karanga which is like a welcoming um chant at the mirai which terrifies me because I right now cannot ever imagine myself doing that but I know I'm going to have to do it so there are a lot of those kind of milestones and things that I'm going to have to do so yeah, the, the, I think the journey is like is always the the joy is in the journey, right? In the process. Yeah, for sure. When I was considering doing it, um, a lot of people said, "Oh, like it will be good for your job," or like, "Don't do it." Like there was a lot of conflicting. Um, okay. <laughs> or, or like one person did say that um, I shouldn't do it because people will forget about me, like because I'm starting my journalism career on TV, mm. and people will forget who I am, and I'm just like kind of blossoming. Um, there are like a lot of people who had like conflicting ideas. So, um, I think that's really interesting, but nothing can compare to being able to speak my language. Like I know that that's going to be the greatest gift that I can, I can have. And what is of the greatest worth requires the greatest sacrifice, right? So, um, I don't really care about anything else. Um, <laughs> you know, or what anyone yeah. else thinks. I just know that this is the most important thing that I can do for myself. Yeah, I think so too. And you, you're very like self-aware and you know that as well. And I think it goes back again to the power and quality of your storytelling. I think it will just add so much more and like it'll unlock so much for you, I think. Mm, um, yeah. So it's better than kind of not doing it and then continuing on, not fully, like it's kind of almost like just out of your reach. If that makes sense. That's what it feels like. Yeah. Like it's there, but not quite. Yeah. It's like, okay, what do I need to like knock down? Yeah. To like like grab it. Institutionalized racism. (laughs) Yeah, where do we begin? (laughs) Colonization. White privilege. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's really also really excited for you. Um, So going back to the whole media thing, because we talked a bit about your experience and recently there was the whole apology yeah right so what were your thoughts when you saw that initially um 
Yeah, when I saw the staff apology, at first I felt really validated because I was like, man, I've been calling out racism in the media for so long and I felt like no one listened to me. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, but then I started to get kind of angry about it because I was like, man, the media have contributed to a lot of the identity crisis of Māori because we've grown up for so long just seeing ourselves in the media in such a negative light and such a untruthful light and such a bad light and it just made me kind of angry thinking about the way that I grew up and how different my identity could have been in being Māori if the media weren't racist like if the media just told our stories properly what how different would it have been for me you know like as Shiloh growing up would I have been more proud to be Māori you know but because of that I I had like a low self-worth you know or I had um Oh, sorry. My stomach's rumbling. <laughs> Do you want a snack? <laughs> I have some popcorn. <laughs> Are you going to cut this or leave it in for laugh? I'll probably just leave it in. <laughs> I'll see how I feel when I eat it. <laughs> no, I'm all good because I'm going to go have lunch after okay. this. Okay. Um, but, you know, it did. It did. It made me really angry. And I started to think about everything that I had read and consumed from the media from the moment that I could even like, this is one thing that I remember. I remember being at my best friend's house, who's Pakia. And I remember when the six o'clock news would come on and I would get like anxiety and I would just like want the ground to swallow me up. And mm. like that, you know, the introduction news would come on and then I'm like, Oh my gosh, Oh my gosh, Oh my gosh, what's going to happen. I mean, like what, what, what kid has, should have to put up with that? Right. Yeah. Like being terrified of what, what's going to happen. And, you know, and then knowing, so I have been at my friend's house where it would be like, um, you know, like they're looking for a criminal described as Maori and Pacifica, and like they, they would look at me like, oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> awkward. Oh, and, and, and I just like, oh my gosh. Or there was another time when, you know, um, the Kahui twins, um, I don't know if people are familiar with that, but that was um, a child abuse case that was out and where these two twins died that was all over the news all over the front pages and everything like you couldn't get away from it and I remember being at my friend's house and one of the family members said it's always the Maori that are killing babies mm-hmm. you know and um I didn't know what to say to that but I remember what can you say to that yeah especially when you're young and yeah um like it just made me feel so inferior and, and like you know like I said before like I didn't want to be Maori if that's what people think of us and it's interesting now when I have been able to sort of analyze this a lot more about how this case was reported and I remember on the front page it talked about how the couple went to McDonald's or, or something like that like went to a fast food restaurant and things like that they were emphasized that hang on like why are you emphasizing that and Realizing actually that um, child abuse cases of, of of children being murdered are actually not all. Sorry, the majority aren't all Maori. It's actually more Pakia. But the, when Pakia have you know the child abuse cases or when a child's Pakia child is killed, you won't see that on the front page. Or you know it might be buried within 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 like page six or seven. Um, so there's so much that has gone wrong and I think the staff apology is a good step like, but I mean just recently they gave an um, opinion piece of Don Brash so 
it's like you can't see this but i just rolled my eyes so <laughs> hard <laughs> but yes anyway sorry oh yeah that's what i mean like cool like you've made that step you've not acknowledged like cool that's the first step but what happens after that right i mean yeah. you you can't you can't keep doing that like you can't you know like if you if you're going to make that promise and you need to stick to it um of course you you might mess up but i mean come on like you gave don brash uh, a mouthpiece i don't know if we can even say that they messed up like it's just it, that's not acceptable anymore as an excuse you know like yeah especially these days you are just people are just so much more aware and 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 also i also think about this the stuff apology is a little bit me a little bit of me is cynical because i think okay are you doing this because you actually want to be better or are you doing it because indigenous storytelling is now a trend you know people want to hear our stories now and you want to do you know you're trying to jump on that bandwagon you know what i mean so it's interesting yeah. to see now what what will happen um i do want to say like a big mihi to carmen Parahi, who was the journalist that led that yeah and i definitely am behind her 100 percent. but it's her bosses that yes leave me feeling a little bit skeptical yeah so i think it is a case of wait and see what happens because that's the only way to know whether they actually mean what they said. Exactly. So, and so what I've seen so far hasn't been promising. Hmm. So. What is the future then that you envision for? Let's start with media. Oh, wow. I think um, what I envision is that the bosses or the, the, the leadership and the media is no longer just Pakeha males and that there's more women and there's more women of colour and there's more Maori women, you know, who are um who are in these leadership roles. I think that's the first step. Um because it's not enough just to have more Maori journalists. You need to have Maori editors, right? And you need to have Maori producers and you need to have Maori in every step of like the leadership levels of making those big decisions because actually everything starts and ends at the top. I'm also excited about this movement of indigenous storytelling. And I think that's the future is that more of our stories are going to be told in, in like a rich and diverse way of, of being Maori. I mean, right now we have definitely have like some Maori media outlets, but I think the future will be there'll be so much more diversity in Maori storytelling, right? Because like people think that, well, non-Maori think that Maori have like one perspective, right, one viewpoint, but it's not true. Like we are just all diverse in our range of opinions and beliefs, and like so that's what I envision is that we have all these different media outlets that are able to tell rich sort of like Maori stories, and so. What about for yourself then? So you're still on your journey, I guess, of discovering who you are. I was thinking about that in, on December the 31st when I was making my New Year's goals. And I was like, okay, what are my goals? And like, I've got the two goals, like the a goal of like learn, being becoming fluent in Tereo Māori and finishing my second book and having that published. But then I just decided that I don't want to measure my life by my success in that sort of way and the career success and everything like that. I think my life should be measured by like my spiritual of who, of who I am as a person. So what I envision and what I hope is that I'm able to really be sure of myself and my identity of um, being Māori 
and in my identity of my faith as well, my identity of who I am, because this is going to get deep, but like if you take away everything, right, who are you like as a person? If you took away all your successes or if you took away your identity as like a daughter or as like a sister, or like everything, take it all away and who are you? Like when you look deep into yourself, into your wider world, who are you? You know, so I hope and I envision that I'm able to really know who I am as a person and be really 100% confident in that. And I don't think I'm there yet, but I'm on that journey. I'm on that walker. I'm confident that you will get there. <laughs> Thanks, Theo. You're, you're going in the right direction, I think. <laughs> I can't wait to follow your journey this year and hopefully catch up with you at the end of the year Aww. to see how far you've come. Thanks, Taylor. Yeah, I'm really excited for the journey and thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. It's been awesome. Thank you for tuning in and I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did recording it. If you would like to follow Shiloh and her work, you can find some links in the show notes.